any new and emerging disease is going to have uncertainty. And so you have to have trusting relationships in place where the political leaders can really look to the scientists to say, what do you think we should do now and really take that advice. And I don't think we had the, those trusting relationships. There's a lack of trust in science in our government right now. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Jonathan Kleinpass. Our guest today is Dr. Taryn Vian. She's a professor at the University of San Francisco and a public health expert. Dr. Vian sat down with Kickback's Matthew Stevenson via Skype and talked about the relationship between corruption and public health, which we thought would be a fitting topic to discuss right now. If you are waiting for part two of our conversation with Mushta Khan and Paul Haywood about anti-corruption evidence, don't despair. This episode will be aired in two weeks. Now, please enjoy Kickback episode 28 with Dr. Taryn Wien and Matthew Stevenson. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Taryn Vian. Uh, Taryn is a specialist in, among other things, the relationship between corruption and public health. So it is especially timely to have the opportunity to speak with her to discuss those issues, uh, in particular how they pertain to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. So Taryn, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Let me start out by asking you a little bit about your own background. How did you become interested in the corruption topic coming from, I understand, principally a public health background? And what kinds of issues have you focused on in your own research in this area? My first experience with corruption was when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in 19, early 1980s in Cameroon. And uh, I had written a grant to get funding from a, from a donor agency to build a health center. And I went with the village development committee members to pick up supplies at a hardware store in the capital. And I saw that they had loaded many more doors onto the truck than the plan for the health center had doors. So I asked them what was going on. And they, they said that the village chief had requested to get him some supplies to fix up his house and to use the project funds to do that. And uh, I made them unload the doors, but it made me think because I I noticed that they really didn't see anything wrong with this, and it started to give me the perspective of understanding how corruption becomes normalized and how it's tied to other cultural norms, like giving tribute to a traditional leader, and that's an appreciation that I've uh, been grateful for. I worked in uh, many different countries, and then around 2000, I had joined the faculty of Boston University, and I read the work of Robert Clickgard and some of the early work of the World Bank on anti-corruption. Up to that point, I'd been working on issues of health system strengthening through health financing and quality improvement, but I started to realize that uh, anti-corruption could also improve health outcomes. And But 
I couldn't really find too much that had been published on the specifics of corruption at the sectoral level and especially in the health um, arena. So I decided to write about uh, corruption in health. So can you tell me a little bit about what some of your work in that vein has been, and not only your own work, but maybe the work of other scholars working in this intersection? So for people who think about and who have been thinking about the relationship between corruption and public health, what are some of the main lines of research and what are some of the important findings? That's a great question. Early work that I did was in the area of under-the-table payments to doctors, and I think some some projects funded by donors were asking to look at particular sectors. And as I did interviews, that was an issue that came up. I, I did an anti-corruption assessment early on in Albania. And um, people were saying that this was a really bad problem, that people had to pay uh, in cash or in kind for services that the government claimed were, were free of charge. But there wasn't a lot of documentation of this. And the government said, oh, these are, if they're giving anything at all, it's gifts given freely to express gratitude. So we did empirical work. And since then, that's been a major area of research in many countries to document that people are paying under the table. And some of the qualitative aspects of the research are you know, why they give, what's the motivation, how do they know they're supposed to give, how much, uh, getting a sense of the m meaning of the gift. Um, because having specifics about the practice can really help you tailor any interventions you're trying to do. Intervention research has been done with informal payments, but that's often whole of uh Govern or a larger reform in the health sector will have a piece that's targeting uh, reducing under the table payments. So a, a health financing reform or how we pay for care might might take on that aspect. Um, other areas that I've seen a lot of research coming out in are the value of community monitoring or interventions that would improve transparency and accountability for decision-making at lower levels. And that's reducing some of the corruption around um, that would be, say, unjustified absenteeism, which is a problem in many health systems, um, and also some shirking of responsibility. People who are, while they're at work, are not really seeing patients uh, as quickly as they should or, or doing work. And then uh, it might also prevent theft of medicines, uh, gaps in the supply chain, and um, that's a big problem in health is theft or diversion of, of medications. One thing that I'm interested in asking you about, and again, this is going to be particularly pertinent given the current situation, uh, has to do with what healthcare corruption looks like during times of emergency as compared to normal times. I know that distinction's maybe a little bit too sharp, a little bit artificial, but at least as an outsider, I have the sense that there's the corruption that we see in the healthcare system during what I just called normal times, things like, as you say, patients needing to make under the table payments to their doctors, uh, maybe doctors or other healthcare workers not showing up to clinics when they're supposed to and so forth. 
But then I, I gather from having read a little bit in this area that there is a related but distinctive set of concerns that apply in emergency situations. And I'm, I want to ask you in a moment about the specifics related to corruption concerns in the coronavirus pandemic. But right now I want to start out just by asking you generally on that topic, what are the main issues or concerns, maybe special issues or concerns that arise in the context of, of healthcare emergencies. And that might include the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in, I think it was around 2013 through 2016, uh, H1N1 outbreak, SARS and so forth. Can you speak a little bit to that issue? Yeah, I, th I think emergency situations, we know that one of the risk factors for corruption is any kind of pressure on finishing things quickly. So when you get to the end of the year and you have money left in your budget, that's a time when there's a lot of pressure to spend quickly and to ignore controls or to try and get around controls. And you see a similar thing happening in emergencies. There's a, pr a pressure to get things done. There's a sense that uh, that it is urgent and that those accounting rules are really stopping us from doing important work. And so there, there's a higher tolerance, I think, of uh, saying, we'll figure out the paperwork later, let's just do it. And so you have a lot of documented, so in, in the Ebola virus um, disease outbreak in West African countries, there really were a lot of uh, un- properly, not properly accounted for expenditures. And we can assume that some of those were corruption, but some of it was probably disbursements without documentation um, that just happened because people were moving too fast. So it is hard in that circumstance not to feel some sympathy uh, for people who are trying to work fast, but there also need, need to be streamlined systems that still have con controls so that the there's a recognized emergency system for spending that still would have enough controls that people aren't um, diverting funds. I think one thing we saw in West African countries during the Ebola disease outbreak was there's a lot of a lack of trust in government to begin with. And so that affected um, how the disease played out there. But what they found afterwards in Sierra Leone, there was an audit of government spending and it found that one third of the money was improperly accounted for. Um, and a couple of a couple of the types of corruption that they found would would be illustrative. One was the government purchased uh, 20 ambulances for a million dollars and they only have documentation that they received 16. So you already have this not uh, not checking and making sure that you got everything you ordered or or consciously saying, okay, well, I, I said I ordered 20, but I'm, I'm cutting some of the money out for myself. Um, the government also paid up front and the auditors traced the payment and found that the money had gone to an offshore account that was not affiliated with the entity named in the contract. So that's a control that was ignored. Um, there were also other sorts of uh, issues in, involved in the corruption in, in both Liberia and um, and Sierra Leone during during the emergency. But I think that really what you see is the procurement issues and the 
and possible embezzlement of donor funds are two major areas. So I want to pursue this line a little bit further because what you just said a moment ago I found really interesting, especially this this tension or, or the challenge maybe I should say of striking the right balance in a healthcare emergency situation with respect to things like the rules in place for uh, procurement. So on the one hand, and I'll, ca I'll caricature this a little bit just to make it sharper, even though this is a little bit unfair, but you might have some people who would say, uh, look, in an emergency situation, we have to act quickly. We don't like corruption. If we find it, we'll do something about it. But all of the normal safeguards that we would have in place in normal times are simply not worth it in an emergency situation, and we need to act expeditiously, and we know that that means a higher percentage of our spending is going to be lost to corruption, uh, but we can't afford to try to push corruption down to call it normal levels because it's an emergency and people will die if we don't get this money out quickly, if we don't get these medicines out quickly. There's, let's say, the opposite view, which I've seen articulated uh, in a few commentaries, including one that I, I published on the Global Anti-Corruption blog uh, last week, has said that, in fact, in an emergency situation, it's even more important that we impose the most stringent anti-corruption controls uh, that are feasible, precisely because in these situations, the risk of, of theft are, are so much higher. And as an outsider to this, I'm trying to wrestle with the right way to, to resolve the tension between these competing goals. And you said something in your previous uh, response that I found intriguing, which is the right, how do you implement the right kinds of accounting systems and controls for emergency situations? And so I would love it if you could just elaborate a bit more on whether this tension I've just identified is in your view a genuine tension or whether I'm missing something and what you have in mind when you talk about the appropriate sort of controls to have in place in an emergency situation and how those may differ from the kinds of controls we would have in place during let's call them normal times. Um, I think that you're right. There is a tension and I, I do believe I fall a bit more on the idea of uh, we have to be expeditious and we have to recognize that there, it's an emergency and there are going to be missteps. I know I saw an audit of Catholic Relief Services after an emergency. It was a natural disaster, but there were a hundred findings. And the issue is when you have findings where it's a piece of paper that's missing and or the piece of paper was signed by three people, but the fourth person didn't sign it. That's where some work ahead of time and part of the work of preparing before you have an emergency n needs to be to develop parallel systems. It, it's a it's kind of a, a premise of quality improvement that you don't take one outlier and design a whole system around that outlier, that you look for real problems and that sometimes you need two processes because there's enough that's different about one set of circumstances that, that you can't use the same procedures for it. And I think that's where we are here. And many countries do have, for example, emergency drug procurement rules for when they have uh, run out of a medicine. And that's a streamlined process so it can work faster. I think a lot of times we know that this is a risk of corruption as well, that bureaucracies become very bloated with lots of procedures. I worked in the Philippines for two years. 
it was 32 signatures to order pencils. It was the same 32 signatures to order emergency medicines. And you need a separate system that's more streamlined to, um, I'm sure the Philippines has improved things since, since the time I was there, but you do need uh, more streamlined systems that still have some controls, but maybe everybody doesn't have all the information before it goes forward. So can I ask you, what is your assessment of the degree to which countries in the world maybe? both including in, in, in wealthy countries like the United States, Italy, South Korea, etc., and also including countries in the developing world, have in place the kinds of systems that you just described, particularly, again, in the context of the, of the coronavirus pandemic. I should probably make it clear for our listeners, because these episodes typically broadcast sometime after they're recorded, we're having this conversation on March 31st. Uh, and things are changing so rapidly that the situation might look a little bit different in, in uh, early April when this airs. But, it, but at least right now, we're seeing many governments uh, try to start taking aggressive measures, both to address the public health situation, but also to address the associated economic and social impact. What is your assessment of whether the procedures that are in place in whatever countries you want to talk about are appropriate for the situation? And if not, how should they be changed? Wow, that's a tough question. Uh, I did read that there were some gaps that we experienced in the U.S. on procurement of test kits because people were using, quote unquote, business as usual uh, methods and not not expediting. And I think we had the ability to expedite, but we didn't see it as something that needed to be expedited. Um so I think part of it is about leadership. It's about making sure there's someone who has the flexibility to make decisions on the fly and 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 to be held accountable for those decisions to, to change a system. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I know that many countries, most countries probably have emergency procurement procedures. And, and the question is, um, kicking that into gear in the at the right time and for the right products and having people that are still held accountable for the decisions that are made in in the revised um, process I, I think that this idea of empowering lower level people for some decisions is tough in in many countries that have very centralized decision making structures um, where that's the norm. I, I was in uh, Madagascar after the natural disasters there. They had um, three cyclones that hit them one after another over a period of a month or maybe it was two months. And after the first cyclone, they followed their emergency procedures exactly as they were written. They had to do a flyover, for example, um, before they could release funds, uh, very high-level people had to be in the plane and do a flyover of the area. But by the time they got to the third cyclone, they those high-level people were very busy and they couldn't make it to do the flyover, but they hadn't empowered 
people at lower levels to be able to skip a procedure that was in their written in their process. And those people were too afraid to make that decision. So it slowed down response to the emergency. I mean, that's not an issue of corruption, but I, I think that that's part of what um, why the planning phase or the preparation phase is so important to and, and the choice of leaders that comes in an anti-corruption in the choice of agents. Interesting. So so let me ask you just more broadly, since we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and the corruption risks associated uh, with it, uh, let me invite you to to comment more generally about that issue. So I try to keep track of some of the commentary here, and there have been a bunch of recent pieces, blog posts, op-eds, etc., um, it emphasizing some have, have suggested that corruption issues may have in some way contributed, obviously not to the, the coronavirus itself, which is a naturally occurring disease, but to the um, ineffectiveness of the response and the speed of the outbreak in some places. And many others have written about the uh, extent to which the coronavirus pandemic is exacerbating uh, corruption risks or maybe threatening to provide a justification for the erosion of safeguards or checks and balances that are designed to prevent corruption. And I just maybe want to ask you as someone who specializes in the corruption public health intersection, if you have other um, observations or, or thoughts beyond what we've already talked about related to that uh, alleged connection between the coronavirus pandemic and, and issues related to public corruption. I think this. I think that the place where this plays out is in the U.S. that that I could see most clearly, and um, I do most of my work in other countries. But but I would say here one of the things that is a real problem is that ahead of time we've um, our government has not put in place. Um, or appointed people in the bureaucracy. There's a lot of acting this and acting that. Um, and when you're an acting leader, you don't have the same amount of authority. You don't have the same ability to make fast decisions. So I think that that has been a problem and certainly not developing the trusting relationships that need to be developed developed early on with scientific leaders and um, decision, you know, people who you can rely on to talk about the science. Because obviously the, this emergency, any, any new and emerging disease is going to have uncertainty. And so you have to have trusting relationships in place where the political leaders can really look to the scientists to say, what do you think we should do now? And and take, really take that advice. And I don't think we had the, those trusting relationships, both because there were acting people and not, not fully empowered people in the positions and just because there's a lack of trust in science in our, in our government right now. So I think also the personalization of power is a, is a big problem. And the personalization of power gives creates um, some risks of procurement uh, corruption where procurements might be targeted to suppliers who are friends of officials in government and they might not be the best people to deliver on a quality idea or a quality product and maybe 
when they do deliver, they won't be held accountable. Um, <clears throat> I think that's those are some of the ways in which I think that it um, it can play out in terms of government corruption or or weaknesses in the accountability and transparency of government um, creating a, a fertile ground for for corruption during the response. Let me ask you about an issue related to public trust, but a little bit different from the one that you just described, one that connects back to something I think you said earlier in our conversation. I remember reading in a commentary about the Ebola crisis in West Africa that we were talking about earlier, that there was an issue or a concern that corruption in government um, maybe not have any, anything directly to do with the crisis itself, but corruption in government undermined the effectiveness of the crisis response because it undermined trust in the government generally. So the argument uh, that I remember reading went something like this. In a public health emergency, the government needs to issue directives to people, often directives that are unpleasant to comply with, like stay in your homes, quarantine yourself, don't travel, etc., and in a situation where distrust of government is very high because people perceive government corruption as very widespread, people are less inclined to comply with those sorts of government public health directives. So again, this is something I remember reading, but I'm actually not sure if there's strong evidence to back up that claim. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think that that's a significant problem? And would we expect, if it is, that in those countries where there is, let's say, a higher pre-existing or ambient level of government corruption, that we w could expect the impact of outbreaks like the coronavirus outbreak or like the Ebola outbreak to be substantially worse simply because people are much less likely to believe uh, what the government says or comply with government public health directives? I think that's exactly right. Um, I And I have read articles that documented this in the Ebola virus disease outbreak that took place in, in West African countries. Um, there were many, so the under the table payments, as you said at the beginning, isn't really relevant necessarily in an emergency situation, but it, it shows that if people are constantly being told they have to pay for something they know is free. That's one of the ways in which we undermine trust in the healthcare system, in the government in general. And in Sierra Leone, they documented that there was 48% of people reported normally having to pay under the table for care that should be free, 40% in Liberia. So there was a high rate of, of people not really thinking the healthcare system was operating the way it was supposed to operate. And what that meant was that when um, people were told, oh, come, come if you're sick with Ebola virus disease, come to the treatment center, they didn't seek help. In fact, they actively hid people who had Ebola virus disease. They didn't want to answer questions about surveillance so that we could tell what what is the actual distribution of the disease. So we couldn't do the epidemiology we needed to do. They wouldn't help with contact tracing. Um, and more importantly, they even would bury the dead in secret. There were a lot of um, sort of issues around or cultural practices that were disrespected or 
not recognized and people didn't get the right information from government and what they heard wasn't adapted to their needs at the time. So that's a slightly different thing. It's not as upstream. Um, to build trust in government can take a long time, but to give uh, thoughtful information to people during an emergency, that we can do because we have anthropologists, we have sociologists, we have people who uh, know how communities, you know, and local community leaders who would know how to get a message to people in a way that could be heard. Um, with Ebola virus disease, they were even burying people, they were putting them in black body bags in an area where there were Muslims, where really you're supposed to wrap the corpse in, in white cloth. So even ordering white body bags would have been more culturally appropriate and might have helped people to come forward with um, with and tell about a, a passing of a relative rather than keeping it secret. Do we have on this point about how informal payments during normal times can undermine trust in the healthcare system with potentially disastrous consequences during emergency times? Do we have strong evidence that these kinds of we call them informal payments. You might just call them bribes, uh, but these informal or under the table payments do have a substantial adverse effect on trust in the healthcare system. And I ask this because there is an argument with which I'm sure you're familiar that in many countries, these kinds of payments are seen as call it culturally acceptable to pick up on a different aspect of compatibility with the traditional culture. So here the idea is yeah, the government says this is supposed to be free, but everybody knows that doctors and nurses and other health workers are underpaid. There's a tradition, or so the argument goes, of expressing gratitude through gifts or other kinds of material benefits. Um, and so is it really the case in many countries that the widespread practice of uh, these so-called informal payments substantially undermines public trust in the healthcare system. I, I take it from what you said before. You believe the answer to that question is yes, but it would be great if you could elaborate a little bit more on what our evidence base is for that conclusion. Well, there's a couple of studies that I've seen that have um, looked at this, and certainly there's a large body of research on the factors that influence trust in government. Uh, more broadly, but uh, Dagmar Radin, I think is her name, she published in the um, Social Science and Medicine on trust. I believe the country was Croatia, and she was using survey data and looking at the connection between corruption and trust and under-the-table payments um, being a, a proxy for uh, corrupt, corruption. Um, and she really argued that there there is a connection and that having to pay more informal payments uh, decreases trust. There's also some work that I saw in Nicaragua that was a comparison over time of, of social audits. So these are surveys of the population to get their perception of services, public services. And they compared over four years and they kind of were able to show how trust in government increased as government was trying to deal with and reduce informal payments through some interventions. Now, this kind of research, there can be a lot of other things going on. So you, you can't um, 
you have to be careful not to read too much into it. But they really believe that by there was a big effort to make it transparent. What what is covered under your benefit plan? What is a a real fee that the government is allowed to charge versus not a real fee that someone do you have to pay? Um, so when the government was showing that they cared about this and that they were trying to do something about it to help people, um, there was a lag between the increase in trust and the decrease in informal payments. First, first informal payments decreased, and it took a little while for trust to increase. But, but it seemed to be a real relationship. Well, that's that's helpful, and I suppose to some degree encouraging because it suggests that sometimes these interventions can have a measurable effect. Subject, of course, to all the qualifications that you noted about identifying causality really precisely. Maybe just extending that a little bit more, can you talk about, from your research or, or other research with, with, your, which you're, with which you are familiar, um, other evidence regarding the kinds of reforms or the kinds of intervention that can be most effective in reducing various forms of corruption in the health sector? And I guess part of the reason I'm asking this is there's so much to be depressed and pessimistic about in this in this area. Uh, I'm I'm hoping that you'll be able to share with me and some of our listeners some examples of the kinds of interventions that appear to have been relatively successful in getting this kind of corruption or various kinds of corruption in the health sector under control. Well, the the example of community monitoring, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with from um, from Uganda, which was not, it was a World Bank study. It wasn't specifically directed towards anti-corruption, but it was um, developing scorecards and then having communities work together with health um, officials and at the clinic level to reduce absenteeism, to reduce theft of medicines, to um, increase the uh, number of patients that are seen and that get effective care. And so I think that was a really good example. People have tried to replicate that. Harvard just finished a study that looked at Harvard Kennedy School that looked at uh, two countries. Tanzania was one of them. I, I can't remember the other one. It might have been Indonesia. But um, they weren't able to replicate exactly those findings through community monitoring. And I think it was in part because they left a lot up to the communities to decide what what would be the um, what's the hammer or or the carrot. What happens when a health worker isn't accountable? They left it up to the community, and in some communities, they don't feel they have enough power to really. This is the only provider in town, so if they're going to give me lousy care, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, I think it's really worthwhile to to actively compare those examples and see what what we can learn about why it was possible in one place first and not in another. I I think there there have been many interventions for anti-corruption, um, but unfortunately, the research to document the results ha hasn't been funded enough uh, from my viewpoint. Uh, so we don't 
we don't have that many intervention trials of, on this to po point to the evidence. I know that there are a couple examples, Kyrgyzstan and also uh, Thailand, who tried to do health reforms that would reduce informal payments, and they were they had data to show they were effective. Did they um, did they last? Were they sustainable? Well, it, in Kyrgyzstan, it turned out as as providers figured out the system, then they found a different way to take under the table payments. So I think that it we can't lose sight of the fact that the the people who are intent on committing corruption or fraud are very smart and they're gonna find a, a different way and that it's a, a permanent part of what we do has to be to try and make things more transparent, more accountable, and to have some controls on systems so that we can um, prevent corruption and and connect it to health outcomes. There has been a lot of research that's looking more into some of the direct outcomes and how they connect to corruption, like uh, work looking at access to um, care for to cancer treatment or looking at um, the effect of corruption on antimicrobial resistance and really digging into the the ecosystem of how we treat people with antibiotics how we purchase the antibiotics how we use them to see where the incentives are influenced by um, seeking private gain and if we got that under control we could, extend the life of a of an effective antibiotic and not have antibiotic resistance. Can you just unpack that a little bit more? Because I think I get a sense of what you're talking about, but it might be interesting both for me and for our listeners to get a better sense of the mechanisms through which corruption can have adverse effects on public health outcomes. In, in some contexts, it's pretty straightforward, right? If medicine is stolen, uh, or if the money that's supposed to be used to build a new hospital is misappropriated and the hospital falls down or is never built, that's very obvious how corruption is is adversely impacting health outcomes. But you, you just mentioned a few other channels that may not be as immediately obvious through which pervasive corruption can significantly adversely impact public health. Cause, so could you just talk through a little bit more how those other channels operate? Well, um I think that in each each area that um, there are different types of corruption and it's helpful to look at them separately and see where the incentives come in. So the substandard and falsified medicines, obviously, you know, there's an issue there that's, that's not corruption, that's just fraud, um, but that you have com complicit government agencies that are allowing these medicines to get into the system and you have weak trace and track or ability to test the medicines, maybe then at the demand side, you have too much demand for medicines. You could deal with that uh, um, because people think that medicines are going to make them healthy when some of their problems are, are not um, affected by medicines. Or you have um, issues of... Um, the let's see if I can think of a good one. The women in maternity wards and how they um, are seeking care or not seeking care for their um, 
to have a, a baby in an assisted in a in a facility where they can have care from a, an, an attendant who can assist the birth uh, who's skilled there it might be that they're looking at informal payments as a barrier and they say oh I can't come because of the informal payments uh, if if you don't know about that you just see oh women prefer home birth or they come and they think, so when they get there, they're supposed to get a birthing package from an NGO that has baby uh, clothes and other things. And they're told, oh, you have to actually pay for this. Uh, we found that in Armenia where people were, um, we were wondering why people weren't accepting the packets and using the packets, using the supplies. And it turned out, you know, someone was trying to make a buck over it. Um, so I think that digging into the to the specifics can help you develop some of these anti-corruption strategies. Do you have a sense, as someone who works at the intersection of corruption and public health, that um, in the public health world there is a sufficient appreciation of the extent to which corruption creates these kinds of problems? And do you have a sense that the anti-corruption community is sufficiently aware of or alert to the special issues that arise in the public health context? Or maybe what I'm really asking you to do is uh, to, to speak as someone who works at the intersection of two different fields, what you think each of those fields really needs to understand or appreciate about the other one? A really good point. Um, I don't. I think there's more over time. I, I started working on this around 2000. I definitely think that over time, more people are concerned and more people are are getting involved. Um, some of the jobs or ways people frame this in organizations is looking at transparency and accountability. They're they're not labeling it as anti-corruption. But I think that transparency and accountability are really good things and that they reduce many, not all, but many of the risks for, for corruption. So I'm very happy that organizations are, are focusing on that. The WHO has started to support anti-corruption. They just sponsored an issue of global health action that's come out with eight articles on anti-corruption in the health sector. Uh, full disclosure, you know, my paper is in there. It's an update of my review of corruption in the health sector from 2008. But working with WHO on that, they've created a global network for anti-corruption. I think that some initiatives like that need more support. To They're tenuous right now, and they need leadership and support. And recently, WHO changed the you know where they're putting their anti-corruption efforts, and so I'm not I'm not so sure that going forward uh, all the support should be expected to be in the World Health Organization. I think we need other organizations to step up and and take leadership at the multilateral level, and to develop more tools for people. I think there's a real hunger out there for how to figure out the specific risks um, and then what to do about those risks. Like you were asking, what, what are the lessons learned? And as we know from all kinds of anti-corruption work, there's no magic bullet. There's no one right 
solution. So it really is a, a journey of helping countries where you do have a principal who wants to stop the corruption. Yes, sometimes you have countries where the corruption goes all the way to the top and nobody feels empowered, but there's usually some agencies, some places where people would like to do something differently, would like to get this under control, but there are some uh, questions about what's the best approach and how to integrate it into the health system strengthening work that they're already doing. So I think some of it is about helping people have a lens and not feel like corruption is evil people. Um, again, you, you don't want to just personalize this and say there's just bad apples and we have to detect them and punish them. That's not the only solution. That's not even the first solution we should look for. Really, in health systems, need to be realistic about the fact, especially in, in low-income countries, the fact that there's not enough resources for everything we want to do and people are badly paid. And so when, they when they're under pressure, when they have an opportunity, they might do something. Um, there's occupational temptation and we have to get rid of that. So that's a lower level. That's the kind of petty corruption that I think we, we could do a lot about with some guidance and with some um, financial support for anti-corruption measures. I don't think that the real costs of corruption are being calculated. The real costs in terms of loss of life, in terms of uh, illnesses that are caused by not getting medical care that people need or health care or having bad policies that are influenced by um, corruption in, in the political decisions that are made about policies for um, importing, you know, tobacco or allowing advertising of, you know, uh, sugary drinks and bad food. There's, there's lots of levels of corruption. And I, I think we, we can start with some of the controls, some of the transparency and accountability inter, uh, interventions uh, for the, the problems that make people feel that the system can't be trusted and then learn from other initiatives in whole of government anti-corruption for how to deal with the more political corruption. Well, that sounds like uh, excellent advice. And I think that's a wonderful point on which to end our conversation uh, for this afternoon. So let me just say thank you very much for joining me today. Um, this again has been an episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. And my guest on this episode has been Taryn Bian, an expert in the corruption public health connection, a topic which I think uh, could not be more timely for better or worse. So again, thank you very much, Taryn, for sharing your insights with, with us all today. If you listened closely, you heard that the name Dagmar Radin was mentioned. Dr. Wien talked about an article of hers, and that article is called Does Corruption Undermine Trust in Healthcare? Results from Public Opinion Polls in Croatia. You'll find a link to that article and to another study of Dagmar Radin in the show notes. Also, I want to give a shout out to everyone who's listening to us from Namibia. Kickback climbed to rank two of the science charts of Apple Podcasts in Namibia. I know this is very specific. Nevertheless, 
Thank you everyone for listening. And also a big, big thank you to our patrons. As always, if you have comments or feedback or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us. We are all ears. Now, please be safe and goodbye. Kickback is a joint production of the Global Anti-Corruption Blog and the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. Kickback is made by Matthew Stevenson, Christopher Starke, Niels Kürbis and Jonathan Kleinpass. With music by Kehan Golkar. Thank you.